Hello, this is Scott Ferguson. I'm teaching lesson 12 in Luke in the Explore the Bible curriculum. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, and we're going to be working through verses 40 through 50 in the text. Uh, I teach Sunday school here, like I mentioned. I teach A59. Uh, John Hoyer is our director, and so uh, if you get the chance and you're back at church, we'd love for you to come by, stick your head in, say hello, or better yet, come in, have a seat with us, and uh, we'd enjoy your company. Be a part of be a part of the class. Uh, I previously taught Romans 12 in uh, in the series of the Explore the Bible curriculum, and I gave a little bit about me in that, and so I'm going to skip some of that this morning, and we're going to get right into the text. So Luke 7 is where we are. So to understand Luke 7, probably the best thing to do is talk about what's been going on before Luke 7. So we have the, the stage set for us, and uh, in order to do that, you can look back in your Bible if you want. Uh, but obviously Luke 1 and 2 open with the birth of Jesus. He arrives on scene in pretty dramatic fashion. And from then on, from Luke 1 even to chapter 7, Jesus has been disrupting the way that religious and spiritual life is carried out. And he makes friends and foes as he goes along. Jesus officially, though, he starts his ministry in chapter 4. And as he announces himself, as he reads Isaiah, pronounces himself as the Messiah, he does so in his hometown and is immediately run out of his own hometown. Shortly after he starts to perform miraculous healings, he casts out demons, which obviously catch attention from the commoners as well as the religious leaders. In chapter 5, Jesus starts calling his disciples, and his entourage starts to really grow. As his notoriety grows, people start coming to him, either to be healed, uh, to ask questions, or even some come to Jesus to scheme on how they would malign him or torpedo his ministry. Then we get into chapter 6. Jesus continues to heal and to teach and does so in such a uh, countercultural and unconventional way, which continues to raise eyebrows of most, but it certainly enrages some. His teachings were simple but challenging, and certainly cut straight to the core of the soul, which again creates friend and foe. He says things that are revolutionary, like the love of money is the root of evil. He says things that are deeply disturbing, like you should love your enemies and don't judge. He shows love and kindness to Jews and to Gentiles, young and old at the beginning of chapter 7, and now we arrive at the end of chapter 7, where he interacts with more of society's outcasts, challenging societal taboos in order to demonstrate the social rules of the kingdom, and that those social rules of the kingdom trump that of the social rules of first century Greco-Roman and Jewish culture. So let's get into it. We're going to read uh, chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 36, though, so that we can get the flow of the text. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. Uh, if you're in the ESV, obviously feel free to follow along. If you're in a different translation, one of the things that I would encourage you to do is just let me read to you. Let me read to you the text. Close your eyes. Picture this. Imagine being here and witnessing this, being a fly on the wall. Luke 7 
Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invented pardon me now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this he said to himself if this man were a prophet he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him for she is a sinner And Jesus answering said to him Simon I have something to say to you And he answered say it teacher A certain moneylender had two debtors one owed 500 denarii and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now we learn from the text that the text pretty clearly insinuates that this woman was most likely a prostitute, if not an adulteress, at the very least. And the fact of the matter is, she likely snuck into this little party because she most certainly would not have been invited. She snuck in to anoint Jesus with a precious perfume, which likely was earned by less than honorable means, let's be honest. Now, on that day, when you anointed someone, you anointed someone's head, and you did so with oil, not their feet, which means that most likely... This woman appeared to anoint Jesus with this expensive perfume and yet possibly was overcome with emotion or nervousness and began to cry. Now, this is speculation, of course, okay? And I want to say that outright. But this is very likely to be the case because the text indicates that she was behind Jesus and was likely going to anoint Jesus with this perfume as if it were oil, but this perfume is actually more expensive than the oil that was commonly used. And so this was to be a massive a a momentous event for her because she was anointing her Lord and Savior with the most precious thing that she had. But likely she was overcome with emotion, began to cry, and ultimately Jesus' feet were wet with her tears, and then she dries them with her hair. Again, a sign of tremendous reverence. Now think for just a moment what his feet must have been like. I used to live in Africa. I was a missionary in West Africa for a couple of years. And uh, I wore sandals. 
and uh, I lived on the edge of the Sahara. I was adopted into a, a tribe there, and depending on the season, it was either extremely hot and dusty because what happens in the hot season when you're south of the Sahara, the the winds come out of the north. It's not like here when we get north winds, they're cold, but on the other side of the, of the ocean there, it's the other way around. If you're south of the Sahara, you get winds out of the north. They're coming out of the Sahara, and they're hot, and it brings in hot season. And so sand dunes actually grow. The Sahara is an organism. It grows. It grows south. And so we were covered in Sahara, sand, sand dunes, and dirt. In the rainy season, though, the winds would come from the south and bring up moisture from the Gulf, like Ivory Coast area. And so they would push these rains North and the Sahara would actually recede, and what was immediately around us that was once sand dunes became basically tropical rainforest trees, lush ivy. I mean, it was the most dramatic landscape change I've ever seen. I didn't even know a place on earth like this existed until I started to live there. No matter the season, my feet were disgusting because if it was hot season, I was sweaty. And let's be honest, I'm a dude, right? And so, dudes sweat. And I wore these pretty robust sandals called Chacos. Maybe you have heard of them or know of them, but my feet would begin to sweat, and then immediately the dust and the sand would stick to it. On top of that, we had donkeys and sheep and goats, and we didn't really have the means to have fences, and so what did they do? Well, they defecated and urinated on the same paths we walked on. And so inevitably, my feet would be absolutely disgusting and filthy. And if it wasn't hot season, it was rainy season where they were caked in mud and dung and urine and whatever else. Jesus was really no different. Everybody wore sandals. The animals walked the same trails they did. And so it's not just that his feet were disgusting. Normally, when you're a distinguished guest, you would show up and a very hospitable guest would likely give you water to wash your feet, if not only just to get rid of the disgustingness that would be traipsed around in their own house, but it's also a sense of refreshment. And he was not offered that. And this woman had no water, but what she had, she gave, and that was her tears. She soaked Jesus' feet in tears and then began to mop them with her own hair. Think about that. She's on her hands and feet in reverence treating the most disgusting thing about Jesus' body with the utmost respect and reverence. Now Simon, as he's observing these things to himself, the text indicates, he doesn't say this out loud, Simon thinks to himself that Jesus isn't who Simon thought that he was. Right? Because he says to himself, well, if this man was a prophet, then he would know that this woman was a sinner. And Jesus, perceiving Simon's thoughts, Just as Jesus did in chapter 5. Do you remember Jesus in chapter 5 perceived the thoughts of the Pharisees and the scribes who witnessed the healing of a paralyzed man? He perceived their thoughts and directly addresses them, and he does so again here in chapter 7. He perceives, Jesus perceives Simon's thoughts and immediately addresses Simon, and he addresses him by name. Now, who is Simon? Let's back up for a second. Who is this Simon, the Pharisee? Because Simon, that name, shows up a lot of places in the New Testament. We have... Uh, Simon Peter, 
We have Simon of Cyrene. We have Simon the leper. We have Simon the brother of Jesus. And now we have this Simon the Pharisee. So many people have drawn a conclusion that this Simon, Simon the Pharisee, is likely to be Simon the leper of Bethany because there's a similarity in that Jesus was with a Simon. And while with a Simon, he was anointed with perfume. And this is Mark 14, by the way. But we find out in that story that Jesus was not just anointed with perfume, uh, but he was actually anointed with perfume on his head, not his feet. And this seems to be a, a different event altogether. It's very likely, though, Simon was just Simon the Pharisee and no one else in the Gospels, and that we learn his name simply because Jesus directly addresses him in order to indicate the seriousness of what Jesus was about to say. Do we know who the woman was? Some women take this to be possibly Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who also anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and wiped them with her hair. But there are actually many differences between that story and the one that we find here in Luke 7. And so what we're left to conclude then is that we, there's, there's really no firm evidence to suggest that we know who Simon is or who this woman is. So let's find ourselves here in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, Jesus here launches into a parable that geniusly demonstrates what's going on. Now, we don't really have a frame of reference for the money in that time, and so I'm going to give you some helpful information to hang on to because Jesus references money quite a bit in his teaching, and it's helpful to have a frame of reference in order to interpret Jesus' teachings responsibly. Now, we've heard the term talent. What is a talent? A talent is a unit of weight, especially a weight of money. Uh, so think maybe like of the British pound, right? It's actually a, a, a weight, but it conveys money. And talent was the same thing. It was actually around what we would consider to be about 80 pounds. And it was typically of a precious metal. So you could have a talent of silver or a talent of gold that were different in value, but the same in weight. What is a denarius? Denarius is one day's wage. Uh, we'll see that again in Luke 19 with the parable of, of the talents. A talenton was 6,000 denarii, which was basically 20 years wages. Think about that. One talent. That's a lot of money. So when you get later in Luke and we arrive and you hear the word talent, Understand that that is a tremendous amount of money. So in this story, we hear that there are two debtors. One owes 500 denarii, the other 50. 500 denarii is about a year and a half's worth or so of wages. 50 denarii is not quite two months. A year and a half versus two months. Now think of it this way. You're behind a year and a half on your mortgage, and you're about to be evicted, and your neighbor across the street is behind a month on his mortgage, coming up on two. The bank calls you both and graciously says, your debt has been canceled and you have a clean slate. Which of you has more to be thankful for? Which of you will celebrate the most? That seems to be the question, right, that we see in verse 42. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? 
Note that the one who is owed recognizes that there is nothing that the debtors can do, and therefore on his own volition cancels the debt. The borrowers did nothing to merit the forgiveness. It was simply extended to them because they could not save themselves from the debt that they owed. Oh, that'll preach, won't it? They could not save themselves from the debt that they owed. Verse 43. Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Now, this may be like the the no-duh answer, right? But the point of the, of the matter is this. The matter was simplified when it was repackaged. In other words, when Jesus offered an alternative perspective, i.e. his perspective, then the answer to the question becomes obvious. So obvious, in fact, that it seems foolish that Simon or you or me don't recognize this very thing in the first place. It is clear that this woman would have much to celebrate because she has been forgiven much. Jesus' perspective on our sins makes all the difference in the world and answers so many questions and solves so many problems about how we should think and what we should do. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water. For my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Do you see this woman? He asks. Now, this is not a throwaway question. I'm going to suggest something here. When Jesus turns the conversation, and he, he basically is, he goes from the subject of the conversation being Simon to now the subject of the conversation being the woman. And he says, do you see this woman? He looks at her. It's not a throwaway question. He's not diverting the subject necessarily. He's asking actually a very pointed and strategic question. Do you see this woman? I think it's more than just a narrative, a use of a narrative tool. It's actually a scathing indictment on Simon that he didn't see her. He saw her sin. He didn't see that she was a person. All he saw was a past. The question also starts a series of comparisons between a pious religious leader and teacher and that of a prostitute. And guess what? The religious leader comes out on the losing end of this comparison. Firstly, Jesus states that the Pharisee didn't even extend basic hospitality to Jesus. Yet the text concedes that the Pharisee saw Jesus as a prophet. You would think that if you had a distinguished guest in your home, that you would want to pull out all the stops, wouldn't you? He of all people should be the first to recognize Jesus for who he is because of his training and his experience. But, like, pretty much... Every other Pharisee that the Bible mentions, he misses the very person who he should have recognized. And a prostitute who likely knows little to nothing about the Bible instantly shows fruit in keeping with repentance to Simon's shame. Verse 45. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased 
to kiss my feet. Jesus provides now a second example of how Simon is coming out on the losing end. The Pharisee did not greet Jesus with a kiss, which was ordinarily custom. As we saw in the garden, right, when Jesus was betrayed, he was betrayed with a kiss. It was a common thing. You walk up, especially to someone you love and admire, you greet them with a kiss. Standard. And yet this woman greeted him with reverence by showing affection, again, even to the most filthy thing, his feet, which were covered in Lord knows what. Verse 46 now is a third comparison. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Though the ointment was something that was not socially customary, it would have been for a king or other person of nobility if they had arrived and was being recognized. Think about that for a second. This is, this is not a just any old guy. And this isn't even a noble person. This is the king of all kings. And he was shown nothing. This woman recognized that the promised one had arrived. And again recognized that even the worst part of him, if there could be such a thing, was glorious and to be recognized as regal. Verses 47 through 48. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Now Jesus claims something that he has claimed a few times already. And each time it has gotten him into trouble. He proclaims something that only God can proclaim. Forgiveness of sin. Why? Well, one, because he's God. But two, because of her love. Why did she love Jesus? Probably because she was in desperation and recognized her own status in life, recognized her spiritual depravity, and recognized that Jesus was the only one who could help her. And she loved him for it. Jesus here recognizes the fact that she has a significant sin history, right? He's not blind to her past but he won't let it ruin her future. Her conduct was an expression of her understanding. Her conduct didn't save her. Her love for Jesus did, because she had faith that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the God of the universe, the forgiver of sin and writer of wrongs and king of all kings and the maker of all things new. Then those who were at the table with him begin to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Those who heard Jesus proclaim forgiveness of sin it incited within them the same reaction that we saw from the Pharisees in Luke 5 and several other places. They immediately become incensed because they realize that Jesus is claiming to be God. He is declaring forgiveness of sin. There's no denying this. Jesus is saying it, and they recognize Jesus as saying it, which is what led later to his crucifixion. It's blasphemy, right? That someone would claim to be God. It's an unpardonable sin. We put people to death for that. You cannot put yourself on par with God. But that's exactly what Jesus was doing, because he is God. Look at verse 50. 
And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Look at what saves. Don't miss this. It is not the fact that she gave expensive gifts to Jesus or the church. It is not because she physically served someone else. It's not because she did some public event claiming faith in Jesus. It was her faith that saves. Echoing the words of God in Genesis when Abraham was justified and made righteous by faith in Genesis 12 and 15. Now you can give all the money in the world, donate all your possessions to the poor, pray the rosary, confess sins, go to church, read your Bible, etc., etc., and still be destined for hell. How do we know this? Because the Pharisee was doing these things and clearly missed the boat that he was sitting with God in the flesh. We also know this because Christ himself made it clear that faith saves, not works. Works are clearly an outward expression of an inward reality in that they are to be done organically. And in so doing, you demonstrate a genuine love and faith in Christ. Just know this, you can perform good, churchy works and deeds and be totally and completely spiritually bankrupt. The text itself is pretty clear, right? It's a pretty straightforward text. It's a pretty straightforward back and forth between Jesus and the woman and Jesus and Simon. And there's not a lot here that's hidden. Jesus has made this very clear and very plain, which is actually what makes this so difficult, isn't it? There's no way around this. There's no, de- there's no denying this. There's no tricky you know, gymnastics that we can do with the text in order to sidestep responsibility on our part. It's really clear and it's in our face. So I'm going to leave you with some observations, some applications of, of this very simple text. The Pharisees are stuffy, institutionalized people. You know who else are stuffy, institutionalized people? We are. We are Bible Belt Pharisees who fail regularly to see and serve others. We fail regularly to see people. We more often see sin. We see their past. We see their addictions. We see someone else's failures instead of seeing the person, just as Simon did. He didn't. He didn't see her as a woman. He saw her as a sinner. He saw her as as an object of filth. And we do the same thing. We also fail, like Simon, to recognize the deity of Jesus and often treat him as a good teacher or a prophet, just as Simon did. Though our mouths would not say that exactly, our actions suggest that this is exactly what we believe. I want you to ponder that. Verbally, we would profess Jesus as Christ, as our Lord, as God in the flesh. But we don't we don't take him very seriously. This woman clearly came to that conclusion and took him seriously. And so I wonder, do your actions mirror that woman's? Now, because many of us, perhaps, are from a Bible-believing background, maybe we grew up in church, or maybe we've been Christians for a long time, 
We haven't necessarily lived a life of licentious or total rebellious behavior. And if we let it, that can cheapen the sacrifice that Christ made for the forgiveness of your sin and make it easier to take Jesus for granted, just as this Pharisee did. I see this woman and she did not take Jesus for granted. Simon did. And it cost him. For those of you who do have a past, those of us who have a significant history, you don't have one anymore. Don't let anyone hold that over your head. We owe our debt to God, and if He has forgiven us, then how dare we let someone we did not wrong hold us in bondage? They do not have that authority. We don't owe them. God is the only one who can carry out punishment for failure to pay our sin debt. So don't put stock into people who are haters. It's clear that this woman did not care about what other people thought. She was going to love Jesus. She snuck into this party and socially made a fool of herself because of her love and devotion to Jesus. And look look what it got her. Forgiveness, restoration, and a history that was completely erased. Does this not prompt you then to love, no matter what your background is or isn't? Does this not stir up a a level of excitement in you that Christ has looked at you as he did this prostitute and declared to you, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Does Does that not get you going on some level? That you could not pay the debt. You could not ask forgiveness. You you did not seek Jesus out. Jesus came to you and told you, you are forgiven. What, What a God. At the end of the section, people, after hearing Jesus proclaim forgiveness over someone else's sin, they ask the question, well, who is this man? That is the question. Who is he? Perhaps some of them said it uh, in a moment of shock or awe. In other words, who is this that, that he would proclaim sin as forgiven? And surely others, though, said it in hate and cynicism. Like, who is this that thinks that he could forgive sin? But at the end of the day, that's still the question to ask. Is he just some prophet or is he creator God? the lover of his children, the forgiver of sins, and the restorer of lives. I challenge you to ask the question, who is he? I also challenge you to ask yourself the question, who are you? And the answer is, you're a prostitute. You are a sinner. You are disgusting. You are vile, as am I. But when we proclaim Christ as our forgiver, as our debt eraser, and we know that to be true, and that stirs up this genuine, organic love and appreciation and devotion to Christ, all of that goes away. And now you are no longer those things. You get to be a child of God, a recipient of the inheritance that does not belong to us. 
That's the kind of Christ that we serve. Ask yourself these questions and answer them honestly. Who is he and who are you? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your time. We're grateful for technology in that we would be able to hear and read your word and to discuss it with friends and family. Father, I pray that as we interact with this text, that we would be honest with ourselves. I pray that we would really come to the conclusion and allow ourselves to be convicted of the sin, that we are stuffy Pharisees and that we don't like to be around icky sinners, people who make bad decisions, people with problems who are prostitutes or drug addicts, and we want to distance ourselves from them. Father, I pray that you would convict us of that sin. Help us not to be like Simon. Instead, help us to be loving and gracious and to see people as they are, people. And Father, I pray that we would not forget that we were of that same stock. We were just as vile. And you looked upon us with compassion. I pray that that would help us to look upon others with compassion. I pray that we would let go of our own past and that we would let go of the past of other people and not hold it our own over our own heads or hold it over the heads of others. And Father, I pray that our life would be one that is marked with actions of genuine gratitude and devotion to you because of who you are. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.